0: Good morning, Hope Fellowship. My name is Jeff Brewer. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad to be able to be together here this morning. We're thankful over the last couple of weeks we've had Pastor Derek and Pastor Steve from Renewal Church of Chicago, a church that we partner with to see churches planted within the city of Chicago. We partnered with them with the Acts 29 Network, which we're both a part of. And so I'm so thankful that they were able to come and to serve us so well. And so um, thank you for welcoming them so well. So encouraging to, to have them here. I also want to point out first, uh, Jared said this at the beginning of the service, just through some technical difficulties, and um, the tech team works incredibly hard. And so uh, Brian and Jake came, and they were feverishly working to get everything going. There, there is a live stream, miraculously, and it's going right now, and so we're thankful to be able to provide that. And so, um, so thank you guys so much. So let's give them a round of applause for both of them, that's not their love language, maybe, but we're so glad I wanted to express our thanks to them. Uh, And then one last thing, Discovering Hope, we're going to have on November 14th. And Discovering Hope is designed for people who might be here, maybe you've been coming to Hope for the last few months, maybe this is your first Sunday here. On November 14th, after the service here, over in our offices, which are about a mile away, We're going to have a light lunch, and you'll get a chance to meet some of the pastors and hear a little bit more about our church. And so it's kind of designed for you to get to know us a little bit and us to get to know you. It's also a good place for you to, if you're looking to know how can I plug in, uh, we'd love to plug you in that way. So um, let's uh, hear God's word. We're in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to spend some time looking at God's Word together here. So, Galatians chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified, justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this opportunity to come to you to open up your word we recognize that your word is a treasure to us it's like fine gold your word is like a lamp to our feet that illumines our pathways and our minds so that we might be able to understand how we might live, how we might understand you rightly we thank you that you have revealed yourself in clarity and in truth and father i pray lord i pray that as we look at your word here this morning that you would be with me as I preach, that you would be with us as a congregation as we consider your word, and that you would change us, and you would shape us, and Father, in particular to this passage, you would help us to walk in freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to play a game? Now, with that simple question, asked in a very robotic voice, a whole generation was introduced to the potential horrors of artificial intelligence gone awry. In the 1983 movie, War Games, Matthew Broderick plays a high school student who hacks into a government supercomputer in order to play a video game. He begins a game, and it's called the game was called Global Thermonuclear War. And he's unaware that he's actually activating a nuclear arsenal and nearly beginning World War III by playing a simple game against a computer. Now, other movies and other books ask the same question. Essentially, they're asking this apocalyptic-type question, what if the artificial intelligence that was made to help us, what if that artificial intelligence actually begins to rule our lives? Now, lots of movies have considered this question in books, from Blade Runner to Terminator to iRobot, and even the Avengers, Jarvis gets into the mix and becomes Ultron and tries to take over the world. You know, you gotta throw in the, the good ones sometimes too. You know, something that's good, something that's helpful turns into a horror when it's used wrongly. Well, as we turn to Galatians chapter five, We come to a passage that serves really as the conclusion to Paul's argument that he's been giving since chapter two, and essentially he's been combating just such a danger when something good is used wrongly and it turns into a horror for the people. Something good was provided by God, the law in the Old Testament, but it's now being turned by false teachers in Galatia And it's being turned into something that's actually leading people away from Jesus. And so as Paul concludes, he's showing how this truth in in God's word is very applicable. It's not just applicable in regards to false teaching and the law, but really he's starting to broaden the lens out, widen the lens out, and show how even Christians can be tempted to rely on or indulge in the flesh rather than living in freedom. So that first verse, it was for freedom, that Christ has set us free. Really gives rise to our main point I want us to consider here this morning, which is this. Relying on the flesh and depending on self turns Christians away from the freedom of loving God and loving others. So relying on the flesh and depending on self, so turning inward, turns Christians away from the freedom of loving God and loving others. So that's where we're going to, to head here. And, and how we're going to do that is we're going to look at three points. And the first two points, really, kind of covering the first 12 verses, are the conclusion of Paul's point that he's been making since the beginning of chapter 2, in the middle of chapter 2. And so it's an important conclusion. And we're going to, he's going to draw it to a close. And then the third point really brings in this truth of freedom. And so the first point we're going to look at is a summary of Paul's concern. So summary, big picture. Number two, the second thing we're gonna look at is a danger that still remains. And then last, we're gonna look at the gospel call to freedom. So a summary, a danger, and a gospel call to freedom. That's where we're headed here this morning. So let's look first here at verses, really two through six, and we're gonna look at a summary of Paul's concern. Now, you know, if we had time, I, we had Derek and Steve come these last couple of weeks, and really what that did, I loved spending that time, but as I was preparing this week, I kind of realized, you know, Paul was kind of, it was like a locomotive. He was kind of like one of the kind of starting to chug and starting to pick up steam. And so we ended at the end of chapter 4 three weeks ago. And at the end of chapter 4, Paul's just about to hit his main point, and he's about to summarize and say, here's why I'm telling you all this. And so let me just take just a moment to remind us of what Paul has been teaching throughout Galatians. And if you're here for the first time, or maybe you've only been here a couple of weeks, this will serve, hopefully, to get you acquainted a little bit with the book of Galatians. So Paul's writing to a church in Galatia, it's in central Turkey, modern-day central Turkey, and he's writing to a group of Christians, a group of churches, who are being drawn astray by false teachers, or maybe even specifically from our passage, a particular influential false teacher, one in particular. And so in chapter two, Paul makes the, uh, kind of gives the argument, by works of the law, that is obeying the Mosaic law, no one will be justified, or no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. It's only through faith in Jesus. That's where Paul starts in chapter two. Then in chapter three, he gives the example of Abraham's faith and how Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul's starting to make the case, from the very beginning of the Bible, even before Moses, and even before the law, people were justified, or people were made right, because of faith. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In chapter 4, Paul talks about when the fullness of time had come. When the right time came... God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption, that we might be brought into his family. So Jesus came, we could say it very simply, Jesus came to bring people who don't deserve to be in God's family into God's family. And the way he did that is he laid down his life. He gave himself, like Paul says in chapter 4, for those who believe in him so they might be declared righteous so Jesus gives his righteousness to those who believe in him. It's an exchange. He takes our sin on himself, and he gives to us his righteousness. Now, all of that brings us to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Paul concludes his point, and really what he does in verses 2 through 6 is, is he summarized, 2 through 5, is he summarizes really everything he's been teaching in the last three chapters. So, if you have your Bibles, look with me, and if you can see on the screen, um, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Look, he says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, right at the heart of the matter, Paul realizes, is these Galatians are being tempted to think that there's something they need to do to add to their salvation. That that if they want to be really spiritual, or if they really want to kind of make sure that they're saved, they need to be, in this case, this false teacher is teaching them you need to be circumcised. Now, now you might be here again and you might be saying, You know, of all the things I thought we'd talk about on a Sunday morning, that ain't one of them. But but Paul, what he's doing is he's referencing back to the Old Testament where circumcision was given given as a sign of what who is in God's covenant people, a part of God's covenant people. And so all those who belonged to Abraham were circumcised, Abraham first, and then following down through the law, it was a sign, an outward sign, of what God, that those people were a part of God's family. And so now what these false teachers are saying is, actually, that's still the case. You Gentiles who live up here in modern-day Turkey, you need to be circumcised as well because you need to prove you're really a part of God's family. And what Paul says is... Nope. Not at all. No way. Not even close. They're wrong. And so Paul's been trying to make this case over and over again. He's been given examples like talking about Abraham. He's been giving examples like Hagar and Sarah. He's been trying to help them understand that through various means and various ways, this cannot be the case. Now, here's here's the challenge I find when I look at Galatians. We might not be tempted to think that we need to obey Jewish laws to be saved. But all of us drift into our mind in our minds thinking that we can do something that improves our standing before God. All of us kind of naturally drift in that way that we think we can do something to improve ourselves so that God looks on us more favorably based on what we've done. You know, last week I was gone. Um, because Molly and I, our second born, took a trip to Ohio University as Jen and I's alma mater, and also Mike Hurtons as well, we all graduated together, and uh, as we walked around campus, and we talked to admissions counselors, we talked to financial aid, and I just went into full dad mode. Now, if if you're a college student here, you probably know exactly what I mean when you say that, because you probably just had that happen when you started visiting college, but I went into, full dad mode, and, and really, I had already been in dad mode since I got to campus. So, you know, I'm starting to have a tear in my eye as I'm walking around. I'm looking where Jen and I met and where we used to walk across campus together, and I'm thinking my daughter might come here and all these things. And so, you know, here I am in dad mode. We meet with the admissions counselor. We meet with the financial aid, and I start saying to Molly as we're walking away. You know, you know, it might help your chances of the scholarships. You need to write a thank you note. Or, Maybe they'll remember you if you just make it a point to say your name when you go up and you talk to them. Or maybe it'll help with scholarships if, and I'm kind of filling in all these blanks. Now, I'm sure, Molly, Molly was a good sport, but I'm sure it was annoying to have me keep saying these things. But isn't it sad that actually we can do the same thing with God? We very easily can start to talk to ourselves, and we can start to say, you know, I need to make sure that I'm thankful thankful to God this week so that he does nice things for me. I I better make sure that I read my Bible today because if I don't read my Bible, something bad's going to happen. And and we kind of start to treat God like there's almost this karma that he doles out. Make sure I obey because I don't want something. What if all these ways we can start to, I think, look, very naturally we all drift into this lane. But here's the thing, and here's what Paul wants them to see and what we need to see. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, the very natural place when we take our eyes off of Jesus that it was only by his work that we are saved, where do we start to put our eyes? We put our eyes right on ourselves. We put our eyes on what do I need to do for God? What can I do for God so that he'll remember me? What can I do so that things go the way I want them to? But what Paul has very kindly been showing us in the book of Galatians is This is contrary to the mercy and grace in Jesus. God did what we couldn't do by sending his son. But God did what we wouldn't have done by sending his son, that he might be, for us, a sacrifice so that we can be acceptable to God. And what we do is we believe in him and we are saved. That's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus. (coughs) And so the antidote to how we naturally turn inward and start to think about ourselves, the antidote to that is to look again to the cross, to look again to the resurrection, to look again to Jesus and keep returning there day after day because we know we're going to drift. So that's the summary that Paul's been saying in these first few chapters of the book of Galatians. So next, let's turn to the danger, or a danger, that still remains. A danger that still remains. Now, to speak of another university, Elmhurst University, Jordan Barlazzi is the track and field coach. And this week was the CCIW championship yesterday, which they won. And so we are excited, congratulations. And what I love is we've seen Jordan work so hard as the coach, we've seen this team work so hard, and it just year after year continue to go from eighth place four years ago to now first place yesterday. What an accomplishment. We are excited to see uh, just how God's using Jordan on campus to continue to glorify God by using his gifts to help people run well. And, And I was thinking about that. Now, I wrote to Jordan this morning, and I said, um, I I found out they won yesterday, and I thought, if they don't win, (laughs) I can't use this next illustration. (laughs) So please win, but I wanted to win anyway. But the championship was at St. James Farm, and if you've ever been over to St. James Farm, you'll know that there's a course, and one of our girls ran there once, and there are sections that you can't see the whole course, and so uh, you can't see what's happening with the runners. So imagine if you were Coach Bartolazzi and you're coaching one of your top runners, the top runner, and your top runner is in first place, and they're running hard, and they're running well. And that runner, they go into the woods where you can't see them any longer. And so you go to the other side, and you're waiting for them to emerge, except the first place runner that comes out isn't your runner, the second place, the third place. On and on it goes until finally you see your runner coming in in last place, out of the woods. Now, after the race, my guess is your question would be, what happened? What happened in the woods there? You were running so well. Which is really exactly what Paul writes to the Galatians in verse 7. Look with me what he says here. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you? Who tripped you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And so what Paul's saying is, what happened? When I came and I preached the gospel to you just a few years ago, you were running well. You were doing great. You received Jesus, and you delighted in his grace. And now, I come back, or I hear... That there is someone who's troubling you, and you're starting to quickly desert this good news of Jesus. You're being swayed to thinking, in particular, that circumcision is essential for salvation. Paul's essentially saying, Who did this to you? Whoever it is. And and really, if you look at verse 11, look at, at verse 11, he turns back to himself as an example. And he wants them to kind of just think about that. And he's done this a couple times in the book of Galatians already. He just wants them to kind of think through this practically. He said, why in the world are these people persecuting me? Why am I, being, why am I suffering for Jesus if I agree with them? If I'm preaching the same thing they're preaching, why are they persecuting me? And the answer is, I'm not preaching what they're preaching, and that's why they're persecuting me. Why am I still being persecuted? And he says this, he says, verse 11, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So what Paul's wanting us to see is the offense of the cross is essential to what he's trying to tell them. What he's saying is, self-made religion, self-centered religion, like what this false teacher is teaching, it can't exist in the world of the cross. They essentially have to ignore the cross, and they dilute it of all of its power, which in turn makes what these false teachers are teaching, they might use the name Jesus, but they're not teaching Christianity at all, which can happen even today when we talk to people. We might use some of the same words, but in reality, there's no cross in view. And so think about that phrase there, the offense of the cross. The cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says it's a stumbling block, or it's an obstacle to the Jews. And and why is this such an offense? Why is it such a stumbling block to the Jews? Because it is the fact that this Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who had come, had been treated as if he was under a curse because he had hung on a tree. And so what God would send his king, his Messiah, and curse him on a cross? It's a stumbling block. What God would send his Messiah, who is supposed to reign and to be killed like a common criminal? It's a stumbling block. What God would send the Messiah, who is supposed to usher in the kingdom of God, which means the reign of God and the blessing of God, And yet, he was killed on a cross. He was defeated by the enemies he supposedly was sent to defeat. It really fulfills what Isaiah 8, chapter 14 said, when he said the Messiah would be both the sanctuary as well as the stone of offense. And so what Paul's essentially doing is he's helping these Galatians to understand, look, There needs to be the offense of the cross because it must be there, and some will be offended. But to those who look to Jesus to be saved, he will be a sanctuary. He will be a place of refuge. He will be the protection. And so these false teachers, they remove the offense of the cross, but they replace it with something that was meant to lead them um, to Jesus, when in fact, in reality, those lead them away from him. They can't fix the good news. They can't make it less offensive. They can't preach Christianity without a cross, and that's Paul's point. You know, if you take your phone out of your pocket right now, and you unscrew those little star drive screws, those little tiny ones, and you get out a soldering iron, and you start to try to add some memory to the logic board. If you try to take like a thumb drive and kind of solder it onto your phone. All you're gonna do is destroy your phone. If you take a paintbrush into the Chicago Museum of Art, and you try to kind of touch up some of the paint, the artwork, all you're gonna do is, well, you're gonna get yourself arrested, but you're also gonna ruin this priceless artwork, its beauty, its value. You know, if you're diagnosed with cancer, and you kind of go home and say, I don't need to pay exorbitant prices for chemotherapy, I've got Windex and I got some other chemicals, I can make it myself. I can fix myself. All you're gonna do, is make yourself sicker. But Paul here is wanting us to see, if somebody tries to tamper with the good news of Jesus by adding their works, or taking away what they think would offend someone, or making the message more palatable to avoid conversation persecution, what they're in danger of doing is what Paul is warning against here. And Paul actually, but Paul reserves, this is I think his harshest language for any false teacher in the New Testament. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. I wish those who would uh, unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now that's strong language, right? Paul says, look, if you think circumcision is so essential, I I actually wish you would go the rest of the way and just castrate yourself. You want to earn your way into heaven, Paul says? Then why stop at circumcision? Go all the way. Now, how do you really feel, Paul? <laughs> Which really shows us, this is how serious Paul is. How destructive false teaching is. To add to the gospel with our works is to hurt the gospel. Like we said, Dane Ortland said at the beginning of our series, to help the gospel is to hurt the gospel. And so let's turn now to our last point here. The gospel call to freedom. The gospel call to freedom. Now, head back up to the beginning of chapter five, verse one. And this is one of the most well-known verses in the book of Galatians. Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the freedom Paul is talking about here means being liberated from the power of sin the power of the world, and the power of the law. Kind of all those things are in view. So being liberated, being delivered from, the power of sin, the power of the world, and the power of the law. And so the liberator, the deliverer, Jesus, the one who's come, is what he's done is he's turned the lock on the key that undoes the shackles of slavery and the, takes away the burden of sin that we could never remove off of ourselves. We don't get better by self-help. We don't get better by just trying harder. We get better by falling at the feet of Jesus and saying, help me. And because he conquered death and rose from the dead, he showed that he can unlock the shackle of sin and death. He can set us free. And so in light of that deliverance, Paul's saying that Christ set us free so that we can be free. Christ set us free so we can live in that freedom. And and he gives two commands, it's really saying the same thing, one from a positive direction and one from a negative. Positively, he says, stand firm in this freedom. Stand firm in Jesus. Negatively, he says, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm, look to Jesus, He alone is your hope. Don't turn back. Don't look to anything else. Nothing else can help you except for Jesus. Now look at verse 13. He begins to expand on this freedom that we're supposed to live in the the good of. He says this, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, notice a couple things here. First, notice what he says. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In context there is exactly what we've just been looking at. He's speaking about a self-centered religion that goes back to the Mosaic Law to try to add something, namely circumcision, to improve our standing before God. But he's not just gonna stop talking about kind of the freedom that we're to stand firm not to use as an opportunity to flesh. He's actually going to expand this concept as he goes through chapter five and chapter six. Because it's not just bad thinking that causes us not to live in freedom. It's not just bad teaching from false teachers. But it's also the selfish desires that in, that in, that intrudes on and destroys living in freedom. And those selfish desires, though we're free from the power of sin, the presence of sin still remains, and so we're still tempted. We're still tempted to turn back and to turn and to, as Paul says, to indulge our flesh. In other words, give in to sinful desires. But also. Not only does not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, look at the connection. Don't abuse your freedom, but through love, serve one another. He says this, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Now, isn't it ironic that he's been talking so much about being enslaved all of this time? He says, now, it's for freedom you've been set free. Live as free Christians, walking in freedom. Now, serve one another. You're free to serve. And I don't think that iron is lost on Paul. He understands that we have become, we have gone from being servants of self, and servants of sin, and servants of the devil, and of the world, to now we are made into into his children, and we delight to serve him to honor him with our lives. But also look at the connection he's saying here. Through love, serve one another. And he quotes Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now scholars say that before Jesus came, now you remember Jesus quotes this extensively in the Gospels, and he talks about it as the greatest command, the great commandment, to love God and to love others. But scholars say that before Jesus Jews didn't highlight this command. They talked about a lot of the other commands, but they didn't talk about this command to love one another love your neighbor as yourself in particular. And so what Jesus does is he comes onto the scene and essentially he says, look, my life, my teaching, my death, my resurrection, they only make sense when you apply this one word, love. And so what Paul's really wanting them to start to draw the conclusion is, oh, what these false teachers are teaching about, it's really, it's all about them. It's not about Jesus. And it's not about love. You know, we're to serve one another. We're to love one another. But think about how our culture speaks about freedom. Now, when our culture speaks about freedom, what we usually mean and free, that I'm free is leave me alone, I can make my own decisions. I'm free to decide whatever I do with my body, with my life, with anything I touch, it's mine to make the decision. My money, my sexuality, and what freedom often means, sometimes sadly, Christians included, is I get to do what I want, and you don't have the right to tell me I can't. But the kind of freedom that Paul's talking about here, it is actually the truest kind of freedom there is. Because it's a freedom that's based on acceptance. That the God of the universe accepts us, and loves us, and brings us into his family. But this freedom, there is, we're not, um, the kind of top freedom Paul's talking about here, it doesn't mean that we're free to just, now just live however we want. That we can live our, but that we can use this freedom to serve others to love others, that we're not competing against others, that we're not trying to better ourselves so we look better than somebody else. We've been saved by Jesus, we've been brought into his family, and now we're set free, not to live for ourselves any longer, but to live for Christ by loving other people. And again, if you think about it, this is exactly opposite than these false from how these false teachers in Galatia were teaching and living. They're not loving others for the good of the others, They're trying to make themselves, as Paul said earlier, look prestigious or influential. They're setting themselves up as better than Paul. And Paul takes them down by comparison. Their teaching tears people down and enslaves them. And essentially, here's how we can summarize it. These false teachers in Galatia, they want people to look inward and say, am I good enough or what do I have to do? When Paul is telling the Galatians, look outward and say, I know I'm not good enough, but I have a Savior who is. I know I can't do enough, but I have a Savior who has done it all to the point of death, and he has risen from the grave. And so when we're enslaved, we're bent backwards, inward, on ourselves. And when this is the case, we're not able to love others as we ought, because we're too in love with ourselves. So the question that we might ask ourselves even this morning is, what are you so enslaved to that you can't look up and see the needs of others around you? What is so enslaving, whether it be something false you're believing, something false teaching like Galatians, or a kind of an indulgence of your flesh that you're giving into that is so consuming you that all you can do is look at yourself and you're not looking at outward and upward and looking at anyone else and how you can serve them at all. But what Paul wants to remind us of here is Jesus has come so that you don't have to be defined by that sin any longer. You might feel like that sin is written and tattooed across your face for all to see. But the reality is, just as I was prayed earlier, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. He sets you free so that you can stand firm on that grace. He sets you free so that when somebody else accuses you, you can say, that is true. But I'm standing on the grace of Jesus. And though that's true, and it was once very true of me, God is starting to change me by His grace. God's accomplished this. He's accomplished this beautiful work in you and in me through an offensive cross. It's an offensive cross that now becomes a beautiful cross. So Paul's call is a call to freedom. Here's how I want to conclude. Just just imagine if you were rightfully imprisoned, you were in jail, and you served a long length of time for what you rightfully did. And you finally were released out of jail. Now, we were just talking earlier about, do you ever have those dreams when you kind of, you forgot about a final exam, and you kind of wake up sweating in the middle of the night? I imagine that if you were a prisoner, and you were a prisoner for long years, that sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you still think, I- I'm still in prison. I'm still in prison. And you kind of have to remind yourself, I'm free. I've been set free. Look, Christians, all of us have things in the middle of the night we wake up for and we think, would God forgive even that? Would God accept even me? Would God even care about somebody like me? And the answer is yes, because it's not about you. It's about His grace that He shows to any who would repent and believe in Him and say, I need you, I need you, I need you. This is the freedom that Christ has set us free into, that we can be dependent on him, and we can stand firm on him no matter what happens in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can say, but only by grace can we say, I need you. Father, I know there are some here who are broken over the things that have happened in their lives. They can't believe the truth that you would actually set them free. In the best moments, they understand this intellectually, but don't feel it emotionally. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would be pleased to show them the truth of the gospel. That this offensive cross has truly set them free, that they are no longer defined by that sin. Father, I pray you would encourage us all in this freedom, that you would help us as a church to stand firm and never waver from this truth of the gospel. We thank you for your grace. And all God's people said, Amen.